Let's open our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 as we study the Noahic covenant, or the covenant that God made with Noah and the human race. Genesis 9, verses 8 through 17. The major theological idea in the first 17 verses of this chapter is the establishment of an unconditional, unilateral covenant that God makes with Noah and with his descendants. That's with you and me. As Genesis unfolds from this point forward, the concept of covenant will be central to much of the biblical narrative. In the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 9, we observe that God is the author of life. And as such, he places a high value upon it. And that includes all life, not just human life. Certainly human life is is at the pinnacle of that approval, but it includes all life. Eating meat is deemed perfectly acceptable by God, but from the beginning there were restrictions on how that meat was to be processed, ensuring that the one doing the consumption of that meat would remember that God values all that he has created. We spent some time on this last week and and spoke about the concept that cruelty to animals is never ordained scripturally because God created those animals, and so therefore... He values life. But while it is acceptable, then, to kill an animal for food, it's not acceptable to kill a human being. For, the text tells us, that the human race, human beings, are created in God's image and therefore have a very special value before God, even even above the animal kingdom. Yes, God values all life, but he values human life above all other forms of life. So if you choose to be a vegetarian, feel free. Especially if your health care advisor recommends it. it. It may be a very good idea from a health perspective for some folks, but that's between you and your doctor or your nutritionist. But to do it for biblical or philosophical reasons would be really missing the point of Genesis chapter 9. God values all life, But the life that God values the most, the highest value he places upon human life. Why? Because mankind was created in the image of God. Because mankind was created in God's image, God mandated, this is not an optional thing, but God mandated capital punishment for those who were guilty of taking an innocent life. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So you have the principle and then the validating point behind that principle that follows it immediately. The shedding of blood is representative in the scriptures of taking an innocent life. We would call that murder. In modern terms, if someone murders a human being, they shall be put to death or executed by human beings. No no lynch mobs. It needs to be an appropriately... Uh, held trial, and it needs to be handled in an appropriate manner, but if a human being takes the life of another human being in murder, then the scriptures say that by other human beings, that person's life should be taken from them. Why? And this this is critical. Why? Because human life is supremely valued by God as we were created in his image. The first part of this mandate cannot include killing in war, as God himself ordains such action. 
A casual read, even just a casual read through the book of Joshua, confirms this. Now, sometimes there are extenuating circumstances. And God allows for that. He allows for a reduction in punishment under extenuating circumstances. And God makes that clear in Exodus 21. Makes it clear in principle in Exodus 21 and in other places as well. But here's the norm. There may be extenuating circumstances. There may be exceptions to the rule. But the norm is this. Capital punishment for the crime of murder. When a a Christian argues against capital punishment on the basis of the Bible, it reflects either a gross lack of understanding of what the scriptures say, or it reflects an improper interpretive method. Of course, some argue that capital punishment was a part of the Mosaic Law and is not applicable today. But the mandate in Noah's time predated the Mosaic Law by at least a thousand years, more likely by 1,500 years, maybe a little bit more than that. If you're inclined to argue against capital punishment on the grounds that it was for ancient times only, then you must be also willing to argue that no human being still carries within them the image of God. And I doubt that you want to do that. Because that's the point of validation for the, for the application of capital punishment. Obviously, obviously, capital punishment should never be implemented without a fair trial, and without a careful review. No one wants to make a mistake here. And surely, mistakes have been made, historically. But the mistakes don't abrogate the principle. That's where we were last week. Hopefully that caught you up to speed. Now in verses 8 through 17, we find the specifics of the unconditional unilateral covenant that God made with all mankind through Noah and his family. From this point on, Yahweh, the God of Israel, would be known as the covenant-making God who keeps his promises. So, So today I want you to remember that, to keep that in mind as we study these verses. It's not just about the rainbow. You all know about that. But there's a lot more to, the, to this passage than just the, implement, the implementation of the rainbow. It's the sign of this covenant. Let's think what the covenant ex- itself does, not just the sign of the covenant. That, that would be like ignoring the, the specifics of the Abrahamic covenant and just focusing on circumcision. Now, that's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. We'll talk about the Abrahamic covenant a lot in the future. But what does the Noahic covenant do for us? It makes a promise to us. God makes a promise to all of us. It's a promise that gives us hope for the future. And that's what we should take out of this covenant. God is a covenant-making God who keeps his promises. In verses 1 and in verses 7 of chapter 9, verses we studied last week, God restates the original command that he gave to Adam to be fruitful and to multiply. And that draws our attention back to the Genesis creation account. Genesis chapter 9 is is very much reflective of the original account. Actually, verses chapter 6 through 9, really, in, in a sense, you have creation and out of or chaos, rather than out of chaos, and you come uh, a creation. Well, here in Genesis chapter 9, you have the command in the very beginning to be fruitful and multiply. So it takes us back, and in a sense, we're starting over, aren't we? All of us are descended from Adam. But all of us are also descended from Noah as well. So in a sense, God is starting over with a fresh earth and with a new creation. Adam and Eve were created for the purpose of blessing. You know, God keeps you alive for that purpose as well. Have you ever thought about that? I know sometimes we get so wrapped up in the daily difficulties of life 
that sometimes we might think that God keeps us alive just simply to make things hard on us until we get to go to heaven. Well, God's not some sort of cosmic puppeteer that's up there trying to figure out 24 hours a day, seven days a week, how to make your life hard for you. He wants to bless you. And if someone said in the past, he's, he's, he's twiddling his thumbs, he's tapping his foot, waiting for us to get in line so that he can. Now, he can't bless sin, but he wants to bless obedience. Adam and Eve were created to be blessed. And now we find here a blessing to Noah as well. And God blessed Noah. And not just Noah, but his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So we see that original motif happening again in chapter 9. God wants to bless each of you. Every one of you. That's his desire. He doesn't like to discipline any more than you like to discipline your children. If you love to discipline your children, if that just gives you your grins for the day, something's wrong with you. It grieved me desperately to have to discipline my children. I did it. Sometimes. <laughs> it's been said that I spoiled at least one of them. But I think she turned out all right in spite of my, <laughs> spite of my spoiling. But the point is, every time that I did discipline my children, just like you, none of us, none of us enjoys that. We want to bless them, don't we? We want them to do well so that we can pour our richest blessings out upon them. And that's what this chapter is really all about. So if we keep that grid in mind as we go through these verses, it'll make a lot of sense to us. Adam and Eve were created for the purpose of blessing. Noah was kept alive for the purpose of blessing. And then that blessing is extended to us as well. God wants to bless you. And, and granted, there is incredible blessing left in the, that awaits us in heaven. And sometimes we need to realize that even sometimes, some things that we think may be difficulties in our life turn out to be blessings when we looked at them in retrospect. Certainly that is the case with all of us that have been through that. But God wants to bless you. In verses 8 through 11, Moses, speaking for God, gives us the essence of the Noahic covenant. Read along with me. In verse 8, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons saying, with him, saying, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, all that comes out from the ark and the, even every beast of the earth. And I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. The covenant is not only between God and Noah, not only between God and Noah and his sons, not only between God and Noah and his sons and his sons' wives, but it's between God and all of his creation. I hope you didn't miss that. It's not just between, between God and human beings. It's between God and all of his creation, because all of his creation suffered in the flood. So the covenant is to all of his creation. And it's a unilateral covenant. God is making this covenant. There's no promise on Noah's part to do anything. There's no exhortation on God's part for Noah to obey in order to enjoy this covenant. So in other words, we don't have to be concerned each day when we wake up and look at the weather report and see that there's an 80% chance of rain or 90% chance of rain and there's a flood warning out. We don't have to say, oh, I wonder if we've been so unfaithful as a race that God has decided to destroy us. No, the Noahic covenant... The covenant between God and Noah originally, between, but the, the covenant that extends to all of us, is a unilateral, meaning God made it. Noah doesn't really speak here. God makes the covenant, and it's unconditional. There's no condition attached to it. So it is a promise. God is never again 
going to destroy the earth by means of a flood. In fact, he's never again going to destroy the earth until the end of time. And then that's for the purpose, that's a positive thing, the purpose for the recreation of a new heavens and a new earth. It's not in a disciplinary sense at that point. Now, the sign of, the new, of this Noahic covenant will be the rainbow. As a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, God instituted circumcision for the Jewish people, for the descendants of Abraham. As a sign of the Mosaic covenant, they would celebrate the Sabbath and keep it holy. So the sign of the Noahic covenant, Noahic mean the covenant that was given to Noah, the sign of the Noahic covenant will be the rainbow. Read now with me the rest of these verses from now till verse 17. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. You see, that's why I say it's to me and you as well. I set my bow in the cloud... And it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember, that's that word zakar, that doesn't mean he just remembers where he puts something like his keys. He acts upon that remembrance. I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now he's saying there never again will be a universal flood. There have been local floods, massive local floods, since the time of Genesis chapter 9. And we've talked about this a little bit in some previous lessons as to whether this flood was universal or whether it was local, just carrying that, covering that area of Mesopotamia. My view is that it was universal. This is one of the things that makes me think that. God didn't promise there, there wouldn't be local floods. There have been massive local floods where many, many people and many animals and, and uh, others have been killed. But this is, this is a promise never to destroy all flesh upon the earth. When a bow, verse 16, when, a, when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 17 is almost a postscript to this section. But he says, And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all that is on the earth. A sign points to something that's beyond itself. It's representative of something else. And therefore, requires interpretation. And that's what we have in verses 12 through 17. We have the sign of the rainbow. Well, what does it mean? Well, verse 14 really cuts to the heart of the matter and explains that in the future, when skies turn stormy, that we don't have to be concerned that God is about to destroy every living thing. When we observe a rainbow in the sky... Our thoughts should not turn to pots of gold, as per the ancient Irish myth, or to a stairway to heaven, which was the belief of the residents of the Austrian Alps. Also, the Polynesians, the Hawaiians believed that. When they see it, the ancient Hawaiians, the ancient Polynesians, when they would see a rainbow, they would think this is a stairway up into heaven. And perhaps someone is making their advance into heaven at that particular point. No, that's not really what it's all about. When you see a rainbow, it's a sign of hope. It's a shame that some things have been uh, co-opted by uh, other uh, particular groups. The rainbow is a great sign, and it's a sign of hope. When, so when we see that rainbow, don't do, don't do like I did when I was a kid a lot. I said, so let's drive and find out where we can see. The, see, there is a pot of gold. There, there's no pot of gold. Never been found. But there's hope. 
And the reason there's hope is because we worship a God who makes promises and then keeps his promises. Some of us have been so stained, I guess, by the interactions we've had with other human beings that even when people put, people put their name on a contract, sometimes we have to wonder if they're going to fulfill the, the tenets that are within that contract. I, gone, way, way gone are the days where you could just say, hey, listen, I'm going to do that. You shake someone's hand and, and you just assume they're going to do it. Now they can even sign a contract. And oftentimes legal remedies have to be brought into play to, to, enforce that integri- to enforce integrity upon a person. So in our minds, sometimes I think we've had our, our souls tainted by a lack of integrity from person to person. But don't let that tainting overflow to God. God makes promises and God keeps promises. God is a covenant-making God. And God is a covenant-keeping God. That's the point of this, of this, not only the Noahic covenant that is made in chapter 9, but the Abrahamic covenant that will come up in chapter 12. Now, if you get this, if we understand chapter 9, when we get to chapter 12, it's going to make so much more sense. Some, some particularly in Old Testament scholarship, believe that the giving of the Abrahamic covenant was the most significant event that is related in the Bible. Now, whether or not that's true, I I would probably beg to differ, but but it's certainly one of the most significant events in all of Scripture is the giving of the Abrahamic covenant. Well, the Abrahamic covenant is modeled on this Noahic covenant. God alone makes this promise. Now, when we get to, actually we've studied it before in the book of Exodus, when we talk about the the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, well, that's not just unilateral, that's a bilateral covenant. God, God made certain promises, but they were conditioned upon Israel's obedience. So it's very conditional. The Mosaic Covenant is extremely conditional. It goes something like this. You obey me, I'm going to bless you. You disobey me, I'm going to curse you. That's the way it's kind of wrapped up when it's all said and done. But the Abrahamic Covenant is unconditional. The Noahic Covenant is unconditional. In fact, it's, it's not until we finish the book of Genesis that we'll get to a conditional covenant. All the covenants in Genesis are unconditional. So verse 13 will tell us why we have the sign of the rainbow. When when God observes the rainbow, he will remember his promise. Now did you catch that? When God observes the rainbow, he'll remember his promise. Because in verses 14 through 16, we learn that the rainbow is primarily a sign for God, for omniscient God to remember what he's promised that he would do. Yes, it's, it's a sign for us as well. But first and foremost, the rainbow is a sign for God. Now, this is obviously language of accommodation, as God, being omniscient, does not need to tie a string around his finger, and every time he looks at it, so oh, yes, I'm not supposed to destroy the earth. I knew there was something that I was going to do today. <laughs> I do the same thing you probably do. I don't tie a string around my finger. I don't have the dexterity in my hands to do that. But I do, I do have these little cards that I'll put up on my dashboard sometime if I'm running low on gasoline. I'll put, and, I, and I notice that. I'll go ahead and put the card there that says, you know, fill up with gas before you try to go too far, because the places that I travel, you may be from one side of town to those. So it's just a little reminder. I have one on my dashboard right now about a lunch meeting I have next week. Because if I don't write it down, I'm, I'm liable to remember it. So this is not like that. The reason I have to do that is because I'm not omniscient, but God is. 
So this isn't the proverbial string tied around God's finger. This is, this is more than that. This is, a, this is a symbol of God's faithfulness. So when you see the rainbow, don't think of pots of gold. Think of hope. And think of a covenant-making God who keeps his promises. And that's why we can have hope, isn't it? Think of another covenant that God made with you. It's not, it's, it's not considered a covenant in the same sense as Noahic, Abrahamic, Davidic, and New, and Palestinian, all that. But God made you a promise, didn't he? He promised you in the scriptures that if you will trust his son, if you'll come to him by faith and faith alone, that he will give you eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish, but have everlasting life. Now, now do you realize that's a promise that God made to you? When a Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul, what do I need to do to be saved? The Apostle Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That's a promise. Now, it's conditional in the sense that God says, if you do this, then I'm going to obligate myself to this behavior. And And that obligation is going to go on forever. That's why I believe in the doctrine of eternal security. Everlasting life, well, if everlasting life could be lost, as Charles Ryrie said, we're calling it the wrong thing. And we need to call it something else, because it's not everlasting. It's not eternal. So God made you that promise. And that's why you can have hope. One of the, the things that I have to, to deal with overseas, and I know what many missionaries do, is, is this is a hard concept for people to grasp, this, this concept of eternal security, that God's promised something, and I've fulfilled the condition that he's given me, and so therefore he's, he's going to keep his word. So many people around the world live in fear. An abject fear that somehow God's going to change his mind, and I won't have, I won't have arisen to his righteous standard. Well, have no fear. You're never going to rise to his righteous standard, ever. None of us. Can't be done. The only reason we're going to get to heaven is God imputes his righteousness to us. Paul calls that justification in Romans chapter 3. But it's a promise, my friends. And so, therefore, whether you're crossing the street after church today... Or whether you're sitting in the doctor's office on Monday, awaiting that report. Or whether your son is sent to Afghanistan or Iraq. Or perhaps you find yourself in a dangerous situation. You can have hope. Knowing that what God has promised, he's a covenant-making God. And he's a covenant-keeping God. He's promised you to forgive your sins if you'll just place your faith in him. He's promised you to give you eternal life if you'll place your faith in him. And he's going to keep that promise. And you can count on it. And you can live life confidently. See, that's what hope means. The Greek word for hope is is the word elpis. I love that word. It's it's a sweet word, elpis. And elpis doesn't mean just, well, are are the Texans going to make the playoffs next year? Well, I hope so. Elpis means a confident expectation of the future. You can live your life with confidence because God is a covenant-making God, and God is a covenant-keeping God. Now, now to the ancients, this was a, a different kind of concept. Because in the ancient world, their gods, with a little g, they make covenants, but often they broke them. Often they broke them. This is one of the things that bothered the ancient Greek philosophers, particularly Plato, I understand, that the Greek gods were never big enough to do what he needed them to do under his philosophy. Because they made promises, but they didn't keep promises. And they weren't out there to bless creation. Oftentimes, they were there to try to make life hard on creation. 
So with the rainbow, God, who is omniscient, perpetually reminds himself never to flood the earth again. It's something that he's going to act upon. Now, here's a very important point to remember as we come to the conclusion of this lesson today. This is an unconditional, unilateral covenant. The rainbow is a sign to symbolically remind God of what he has promised. To symbolically remind him. You don't remind an omniscient God of anything, but to symbolically remind him. Noah made no promise here. God alone makes this commitment. God commits himself to a certain course of action irrespective of what Noah and his descendants may do. And we better be really, really glad about that because we're among his descendants and we know what's happened. We know the evil in the world that has been perpetuated since Noah's time. We don't need to go through a roster of that this morning. Now, this is huge. The idea of an unconditional unilateral covenant being introduced here is huge, for it gives us a preview of the Abrahamic covenant, which will be given beginning in chapter 12. That covenant is also unconditional and unilateral. There, God will obligate himself to a certain course of action that's not dependent upon Abraham, but that is entirely dependent upon himself. So while the rainbow is primarily a sign for God, it's also a sign for us. It's a sign of hope because we know with confidence, with confidence that God will follow through upon that which he has promised. Now one question you may just have in your mind as we wrap this up, did did rainbows exist before this time? Some would say yes, some would say no, some would say this is a brand new phenomenon. The, The truth is we really don't know. But it's entirely possible that they did. We have no textual reason to conclude that the rainbow is a new invention here. Uh, For example, circumcision was known in the ancient world before God instituted it as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Other cultures practiced that. And other cultures observed a Sabbath or a day of rest before the institution of the Mosaic Law. So that wasn't unique to Israel as well. But what happens is the rainbow, which which I believe was probably already in existence, the phenomenon of a rainbow, it was accorded a special significance at this particular time. Again, the main point of the first 17 verses of chapter 9 is that God's covenant turns judgment into grace. They have just come off a devastating flood that has destroyed all. And now God makes this gracious covenant with Noah. In chapter 9, God establishes a new order with a blessing of fruitfulness and prohibition against taking another person's life. And promised by means of a covenant never to destroy every creature again by means of a flood. The rainbow would be the perpetual reminder of this act of grace on God's part. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a covenant-making God and that you are a covenant-keeping God. Thank you that we can sleep well at night. And I thank you that we can live confidently during the day, knowing that you keep your word. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.